Well, welcome everybody back from the feast. If you actually were able to um, go uh, attend elsewhere, if you attended at home, we welcome you back here to services. It's great to be back here with all of you. Um, just in regards to Jason, I mean, nothing's really that serious right now, but he just woke up this morning again with another scare. And, you know, the prayer is really just to take the condition away so he doesn't have to deal with it. But I'm thinking always about all the other kids. There's a lot of kids in this world that deal with, like, respiratory issues growing up. You've got asthma, things like that. And then if you aren't a parent and haven't experienced one of your kids having a hard time breathing, I can't explain to you what that's like. Broken arm, broken finger, things happen. But uh, one thing that uh, this whole thing with Jason's done for me is it helps you to understand that we're literally only one breath away from this life, you know, from our sleep. That's it. It's a very precious, precious gift that God gives us, this life. And um, sometimes we take it for granted. So to all those that, uh, you know, suffer from any kind of respiratory issues, please pray for them too. Um, All right, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the current events today, some of the things going on today. I don't know how many of you are paying attention to the news lately. I see two hands, three hands, four hands. That's it? I don't believe the rest of you. I bet we're all paying attention to the news lately. Tired of it. It's amazing what we see on the news. I thought I'd never see some, you know, some of the things I'm seeing on the news happening. And, you know, I prayed to God that God would just reveal the truth. And boy, oh boy, there's a whole bunch of uh, information coming out about candidates and their real agendas versus what they say. And you think it's all new, but something tells me that this has been going on since, since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Right? It's human nature. There's been politics through every single government. There's been agendas, and there's been hidden agendas, and there's been power struggles, and in the midst of it, there's been some people that have been trying to do good and do right and be honest. It's just amazing to me what we're starting to see now. And we've got some choices before us as a nation. I want to talk a little about that choice. Now, I know that uh, speaking about politics can be very difficult, or sometimes people say Christians should never talk about it, especially from you know, a lectern or a sermon, but you know, this is life. This is life, and this is the country we live in. And you know, this concept I want to talk about today, or the question I want to ask, I'll just tell you right now, I'm not going to take a stand on it. I don't know, actually, exactly what the Bible says about it. I'm still studying. I'm still learning about it. But I know that there are some very, very strong opinions about this topic. And I know that there are some strong and divergent opinions about this topic, even within God's church and even within the CGI. Now, I believe, unless I'm mistaken, that the CGI does not officially take a position on this topic. It doesn't condemn it, 
nor does it promote it. It just doesn't take a position on this topic. It leaves it up to us. So what I want to do today is I'm going to go through some scriptures and I'm going to lay out both cases, both sides of this topic that I'm going to talk about. And like Fox News, you decide. I'll let you decide. Just kind of stealing their motto. I I might share with you my personal decision so far, but it's always, you know, I have the prerogative to change my view if new information comes to light, as I learn. So anyway, that's what I want to do today. Anybody know what topic I'm talking about? Voting. Voting. Should Christians vote? It's a hot topic. How many people, first of all, I'll just, I have some statistics on evangelical Christians, okay? So in the 2012 election, the presidential election, Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney, um, someone take a guess of how many evangelical Christians voted in that election? Take a guess. Throw out a percentage. Gut feel. 66%. What do you think? 60? Do you know how many evangelical Christians there are in this country? According to the Census Bureau, uh, let me see, I've got the number here, about 80 million. 80 million. The 2012 election results... Barack Obama got a total of 65 million votes, and Mitt Romney got 61 million votes. So there was 4 million votes difference. 4 million. So there's, in this country, about 80 million evangelical Christians, and about 32 million of them voted. 48 million did not vote. 48 million. So about, you know, less than 50%, about 40% of evangelical Christians vote. 60% do not. So it's pretty divided. I, if I took a guess in God's church, I bet it's even more. I bet there's even more people that don't vote. If I look at all the Church of God movements, especially with some of the things I've read. I got on some of the other Church of God uh, sites, read some articles, And there are some articles from pastors in the Sabbath-keeping community that make a very, very impassioned case why Christians should not vote. But I know that there are some of us who do vote. If those 48 million, let's just say 10% of those 48 million, another 5 million people, another 5 million of those evangelicals voted in the 2012 election, who do you think they would have voted for? Well, there's some statistics on this year, this election. I I don't know if you're interested in hearing, but of all of, I, I saw some data from Pew Research, 
This was an article on Christianity Today. Pew Research um, did a study polling all of, you know, polling evangelical Christians. And of all evangelical Christians, including all races and whatever, denominations, someone want to take a guess for who they are tending to vote for in this election? Well, it's Clinton or Trump, or the third party, Trump. 78% of evangelical Christians are saying that they would vote for Trump. 17% Clinton. Now, Trump has his flaws, right? Donald Trump has his flaws. I would bet that if I saw data from Mitt Romney... Now, we know Mitt Romney was a Mormon, and there might have been some evangelicals that had an issue with that, but it would probably be about the same. About 80% of them would have voted for Mitt Romney. So if just 4 million or 5 million would have voted, that would have changed that election. would have changed the election. Now, you reserve judgment on whether that would have been good or bad. I'm not going to get into that. Some people, I think, would think it would be good, some bad. I'm just saying it would have had a major, major impact. Uh, Franklin Graham was just recently interviewed. And I've never seen on the news, this is my first time in my life, I've actually seen religious leaders, Christian religious leaders, proactively on the news asking Christians to go out and vote. I've never seen that before. It's always been kind of behind the scenes. But I've seen on the news channels people like Franklin Graham and other Christian, you know, more popular traditional Christian leaders proactively saying to vote, and they say they're going to vote for Donald Trump. It's kind of amazing. I've never seen that. But Franklin Graham says, We need to vote for men and women who believe in God. If Christians would just vote, then elections in this country would be very different. So on one hand, you have a group of Christians who believe that it's wrong to vote, that we shouldn't vote. And I'm going to go through some of the scriptures to be balanced, to be fair, and let, you know, go through the argument of why Christians should not vote. And then I'm also going to go through some scriptures that might challenge that view a little bit. But the point is, brethren, but that with the things we see going on, the things we see going on in the world, where our government and our judges and justices and politicians, people in charge, bureaucrats that we elect are removing God from schools, through public school systems, through uh, school boards, their policies, removing books, that might contain references to the Christian roots of our country. They are pushing policies that are in direct conflict with God's ways. Through political correctness, they are um, eroding religious liberty for free speech and to practice their religion because it's conflicting with Um, hate speech, what's deemed as hate speech nowadays. 
We see the redefinition of marriage by governments, secular governments, are redefining marriage, which is actually defined, it's actually a religious concept, marriage. Started in the Bible. It's defined by God. Talk about abortion. Governments have impact. Government policies have impact. What kind of impact on, okay, what's the, what's the statute? Well, how much taxes are we going to pay? Brethren, this is life and death. If you believe that as a forensic scientist, for example, they use forensics to, um, you know, in criminal law now, in, in investigations, they'll actually pull up dead bodies, test the DNA to see if there's DNA, and they use DNA to actually identify unique individual people. You personally have your own DNA signature. It's like your fingerprint, but even more unique. Now, I say, logically, that after, just think about this, we're talking about abortion, a little side topic here, but I, wanna, I think it's important that we understand the, the gravity of the impact of some of these things that happen in our country. So after conception, sperm meets with the egg. It's just physiology. At that point, at that moment, if they could go in and do a DNA sample, that would not be the DNA of the mother. It's its own unique DNA. So according to forensic science, we would say that's its own person. Or if it's, you say, well, it's not a person yet until it breathes or meets certain criteria, you can say this, it certainly is not the mother's body. Because anything of the mother's body, take that DNA, it would be the DNA of the mother's body. It's not even the mother's flesh or tissue. So this whole argument that a woman has a right to choose to do with her body whatever she wants to, hey, I'm, I'm for that. Government shouldn't... I, I like that, personally. Liberty. But that, that fetus is not part of the mother's body. If you're honest, if you're intellectually honest, you would have to conclude that. Now, the implication is is by allowing abortion, if you believe that that being, that baby, is a person, that person has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness under the law, then a policy allowing abortion is in direct conflict with God's law. Thou shalt not commit murder. If you believe that, if you believe that. If you don't, then it's not. The point I'm trying to make, brethren, is that the, the elections have impact, real impact in our lives. There are people that say that, well, you know, whoever it is, God chose them. Therefore, if they put in these policies, God must have wanted it. We'll explore that a little bit, but does God really want a policy of abortion? No, people sin. People make mistakes. Anyway, I think it's an important topic. Should Christians vote? 
So let's go and, and look at a few scriptures. I want to start with the argument of why Christians should not vote in elections. Let's start there. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I'll just look at a few things here. Matthew chapter 6. Here Jesus was asked about his authority. Actually, I have the wrong scripture here. Hmm. Well, I'll just reference it. If you know it, you can tell me where it is. But uh, Jesus made a comment where he said that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. Yes, he is a king. Maybe that's, I think he was talking to Pontius Pilate at that time when Pilate asked him, are you a king? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. I think that's where it was. You can look that up on your own. But let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because it also says one of the arguments of why we should not vote is simply that we are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of a different government. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us this very plainly. leave my glasses off. I need to get some bifocals at some point. I, ref- I was supposed to have them last year, but I refused. And I think it's coming to the point. So, break into the text here in verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be a sin for us who knew not sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when we say we are ambassadors of Christ, the argument here is that we are citizens, not of this world, but we are citizens of of God's kingdom. We are ambassadors of that kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, not here on this earth. So that's one of the arguments that... We are citizens, not of a worldly government. Another one here is that Satan is really the god of the world. That the human governments, this worldly system is really Satan's world. You can reference in Matthew chapter 4, remember when Jesus was being tempted out in the desert, and one of the last temptations that Satan did to Jesus, he said, took him up to a high mountain. It's uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. And Satan basically told Jesus, Look at all the kingdoms of the earth. I will put you as king over all of them. And that's when Jesus said, Get me behind you, Satan. Right? That implies that Satan is an authority over the kingdoms of the earth. That he has the authority to put people in positions. Interesting. God allows Satan to be able to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, just a couple chapters over here, verse 4. The Apostle Paul refers to this, say, 
But if our gospel be hid, that's verse 3, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. In other words, here Paul is saying that, referencing that Satan the devil is the God of this world and has blinded the minds of non-believers. Referencing that the worldly governments are really empowered by and a system of Satan. Therefore, we shouldn't participate in them. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 here. Verse 17. Here, let's uh, start in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what concord or agreement hath Christ with false gods? Or what part hath he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So therefore you are the temple of God. God is in you and you're spiritual. You're not part of this world, brethren, is what this says. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. So the people that say the argument against voting in, a, in our election is that by voting, we are not separating ourselves from the world. We're enjoining ourselves to the world or participating in it. That's the argument there. In Revelation chapter 18, I just turn with me over to the, there because at least we can get a little bit of insight now of what we are supposed to separate ourselves from. Because I would ask the question, does this mean we should separate ourselves from manly institutions or participation in manly or, you know, men's organizations or institutions? What is it really saying that we should be separating ourselves from? So Revelation chapter 18 which speaks of Babylon. This is speaking of the beast that is going to take over, this government system that's going to take over before Christ returns. And it says in chapter 18 of Revelation, verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. So they say, come out of this system. Don't be part of the system. And the system they're talking about is Babylon. Babylon. This worldly system that's in conflict with God's ways. Another argument against voting, brethren, is that people say, you know what? God picks all of the leaders anyway. God picks them. And therefore, by voting, you run the risk of actually casting a vote that could be in conflict with God's will. So let's go and and look at a couple of these scriptures. Just go back to Daniel chapter 4. This is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. I think there's a very interesting story here in Daniel. 
not just a story, this is history. It's a, it actually occurred. But Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king, and God had a lot of activity and interaction with Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 3, we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. We read in Daniel about how Daniel was actually appointed. We'll get to that later, but Daniel, Daniel had a position in that kingdom. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, in chapter 4, verse 17, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream here, and Daniel's going to interpret the dream in chapter 4. And it was basically about, I'll just give you a paraphrase a little bit, chapter 4 here. Nebuchadnezzar saw this dream about a great tree that was very fruitful, but then all of a sudden the tree would lose its leaves and become barren for a while, but its roots would remain after, um, I think, seven times is what it said. And then it would be restored. Here we can start in verse 15. Nevertheless, leave this. So in 14, he said, He cried aloud and said, Thus, hew down the tree. This is the dream. And cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and a tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. And so um, it continues here, verse 7. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand of the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know. And so what we're talking about here in verse 16, if you continue to read, you'll see the interpretation of the dream what we read here in verse 14 through 16 is that Nebuchadnezzar was going to have his kingdom pulled from him. God was going to remove it from him. And Nebuchadnezzar was going to actually be driven crazy. His mind, he was going to lose his mind, and he was going to roam around on the earth like an animal with long nails and hair, and he would eat like an animal for seven years, and then after that, the kingdom would be restored back to him. And it was all about God teaching Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar, who was all puffed up and prideful, saying that it was him who, it was his activity, it was by his authority that he got all this power. God said, no, 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 he humbled him. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar. You can continue to read that. But this verse right here, verse 17, is what I want to key in on because this is what a lot of the people, or the argument against voting, they, they point to this. This matter is by decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets up over it the basis of men. In other words, the point here and the argument here is that rulers, those who are in authority, are only 
given that authority through ordination of God. And we can read other scriptures where God says all power and authority in earth is given through Him. It's of Him. And we will go ahead and read a a scripture in the New Testament by Paul that basically talks about where all that power of principalities and worldly governments really comes from. And we do see examples. God named Cyrus to be king 200 years before he became king. God named Jehoshaphat king. God selected when the Israelites said, we don't want judges, we don't want your rule anymore, God. We want a king like the other nations. God anointed Saul. So there's a lot of evidence that God indeed does ordain. Ordain means select or give authority to kings, those that are in government positions and authority. And then the argument is, since God is the one doing it, like I said, if we participate and try to exercise our will, our will could be in conflict and we would be undermining it. Or if I just stand aside and just don't participate, hey, God's will be done and he will appoint whoever he wants. I'll wash my hands of it. No responsibility. That's kind of the the view. So I'm not going to go and try with like difficult scriptures, point for point, give a counter to each one of these. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just show a different argument. That's basically what I saw as the argument for why a Christian should not vote in manly government elections, human, human affairs. So now let's talk about some other things. What would be an argument for why a Christian should vote? Well, I think before we get into that, brethren, I'd like us to understand something. If we have to, I think, thinking through this, because it is true that God does ordain all authority. In fact, you know what, I'd like to jump forward and maybe just read that scripture. I was saving it for later, but before I get into this, let's go to that scripture in Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. Because God does indeed say that all power and authority, whether in heaven or in earth, or in earth, is really ordained by him. Romans chapter 13. Here the Apostle Paul is writing to the Church of Rome. Interesting, Paul was a Roman citizen. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power, and he's talking about governments, you know, human governments, the higher powers of earth. He says, For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Yes, for those of you who like or those of you who don't like certain leaders, you can know that God ordained it. It was within God's plan. And therefore, we should be subject to those powers. Even though we have a citizenship 
not of this earth. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are to be separate, yet the Apostle Paul tells us to be subject to these worldly governments. He says, Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Wow, pretty strong words. Now, of course, if any of these powers come in conflict with God's laws, God says, seek him first. His laws reign supreme. But as long as the manly or worldly governments are within the laws of God, we are to obey them and give our due respect to their rule. It says verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to, do, to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? In other words, God's being very pragmatic here. Paul is being very pragmatic here. He's saying, look, this is the real world that we live in. There are people that are of power. God ordained them, allows them to be there, but you know what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're sinners just like we are. And they will make mistakes, and they're subject to vanity and to ego and to agendas. Therefore, don't get on their bad side. <laughs> don't do something that's going to bring evil upon you, is what he's saying here. Remember Paul said, if at all possible, live peaceably with all men, everybody. Says, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God. In other words, God is using these leaders to execute his plan, to do some will, to execute his will on this earth. He is a minister of God to thee for good, but if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. In other words, God uses the worldly governments for many different ways. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause, pay you tribute also. Pay you tribute. In other words, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Remember, Jesus said, render unto Caesars what is Caesars. Did Jesus pay taxes? Did he obey the laws? Of course he did. Of course he did. It says, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Yes, brethren, believe it or not, we can render honor to men in manly or men's governments, men's institutions. We have that judgment to do so. Render honor to whom honor is due. So let's go back now. Just wanted to make that point that all of this authority does come from God. So, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, to kind of get into the counter argument of why a Christian might consider voting or should vote. The first thing I think we have to understand is that in every one of these cases of the scriptures I went through, 
they were talking about kings, weren't they? Kings. Now, what's a, what is a king? A king is a position, or is, a, is someone who has rule or sovereignty over other people. Kings, in kingships, all of the people's wealth belongs to the king. Back in England, they had serfs. Serfs were property of the king. Serfs were people that worked in, in the field. Now, there are people that don't know their civics, that don't know government, that actually think when they elect a president, they're electing a king. But they're not. They're not. We do not have a kingdom of the United States. I think it's important because I want us to think through what system of government we actually have in this country. And who has authority. So our government is a representative government. It is a constitutional republic. There is a law, a constitution, and then there's three houses. There's an executive branch. Well, I'll start with the, with the legislative branch. There's a legislative branch where there are representatives of the people, representatives of the people, that argue and debate and make laws. Then there's a ju- judicial branch that makes sure that whatever laws they make are in concord or in, in accord, not conflicting with the law of the land, which is the Constitution. And then there's the executive branch who's in charge of being like a boss managing a company. They're actually executing the government. They're managing the government for us. They make sure that bills get paid. They make sure that people get hired. They make sure that the roads get taken care of and everything else. The executive branch. They execute the government functions. The president is the CEO, essentially. Now, nowhere in there is a king. Nowhere in that system is one person who has authority, ultimate authority, over the citizens. In our system, who has authority? If you know your civics, you know the United States government, how it's set up, a citizen is actually part of the government. It is a government position. You've heard the expression... Government by the people, for the people. Citizens have authority. What is that authority? They exercise that authority through voting. I don't know if you ever looked at it that way. So when we elect somebody, we're not electing someone to rule over us. They're actually our employee. We're hiring them. We're the boss. They work for us. The President of the United States works for us. We don't work for him. We put him, we hire him to do a job or her. And if we don't like it, we don't like the job they're doing, we exercise our authority, those who would vote, as citizens, and we remove that person from their job. We basically fire them. And we hire somebody else. So if we think about the authority, who ultimately has the authority in our system of government? 
the citizens. Now, we just read here that all authority is ordained by God. So, is it possible that your authority given to you to vote and to participate in this system is actually ordained by God? That God gave you that authority? Just another way to think through things. We're not kings. We're not electing, we're not choosing a king. We're the ones that are in charge. And we have authority that we can exercise through a vote. And we can be sure from the scriptures that since that is authority, it is power that it is ordained by God. That's one point that I'd like to make and just get us thinking about. I gotta just find my place in my notes here. Okay. Here's another thing that we can think about. If we are to separate ourselves from any man institution that has authority, does that include my work? So when I work in my company, there is definitely a boss. That boss has authority over me, no question about it. Now, I have a job. Believe it or not, I have authority. I have employees that work for me. In my company, I have a lot of opportunity and often exercise this opportunity to vote. Sometimes it's an actual vote. Sometimes it's a vote with my voice. But I have a lot of say in what happens in our company. I'm participating in that man or man-organized system of authority. If I'm supposed to separate myself from the world, I'm not part of it, am I doing something wrong by participating in that company and exercising authority and casting my vote of what happens? I actually hire people. I have a say in who we're going to hire. What about in your school district? Here's an example. Let's say you have an opportunity to choose your next principal for your elementary school. And one principal is very, you know, progressive, wants kids to learn all about homosexuality and two dads and all this kind of stuff. Hey, if you think that's good, I'm not going to judge. It's up to you. Just saying, there's one, one option. Another option is someone who's a very committed Christian, who believes in Christian values, that, that actually wants to promote in the school godly principles, say the Pledge of Allegiance, all that kind of stuff. You have an opportunity to cast a vote and select. They say to all the parents, you choose the next principal. Would that be wrong? I don't know, maybe. Would God not want us to cast a vote and select a principal that might benefit our children? How about if you're part of a charitable organization? That's an organization with authority, an organizational structure created by men. God's not in charge of every one of these organizations like he was in ancient Israel. 
Do we not participate in saying how that organization is going to conduct its affairs? Another thing to think about. Turns me to Hosea chapter 8, because there's an interesting scripture in here I want to bring to your attention. Because we say that God chooses, there are people that believe that God chooses every single, every single leader. Now I'll say this, I personally believe that God allows every leader, ultimately ordains every leader. In other words, if there's a leader that God doesn't want to be there, that won't happen. God is all-powerful. He will make sure that his will is accomplished. But are there various scenarios that maybe we could choose and both scenarios would be okay with God's plan and he just wants to see what we're going to do? Another thing to think about. But turns me to Hosea chapter 8 because here there's a very interesting scripture that I think is worth some study. Hosea chapter 8. Set the, actually, let's just start in four, chapter 4 real quickly because I want to set this frame here. Chapter 4. Hear the, Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. So he has a controversy with Israel because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. So they had started to remove God from their culture, remove God from their system of government, remove God from their lives, from the land. Now look here in chapter 8 here. Set the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an angel against the house of the Lord because, because so this is a judgment, prophecy of a judgment against Israel. He says, Because they have transgressed my covenant... They broke God's laws and trespassed against my law. They did not keep God's commandments in their government. They had Jehoshaphat, who became king, and he sinned, and he caused Israel to sin, and he changed the days of worship. And long story short, they committed sin. Verse 2, Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know you. Israel has cast off good. The thing that is, is was added. But Israel has cast off good. I think that's a better way to read it, just the way it was intended. They've left God and his ways. The enemy sh- shall pursue him. Look at this in verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. Interesting. Here are kings that they chose, but it wasn't of God. They have made princes, and I knew not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. Isn't that interesting, brethren, that here we see that God, you know, here, another way you could read this, they have set up kings, but not by me. This expression, but not by me, it could also be rendered, but not by his authority. But not by his authority. 
Or another way you could read this, if you look at some of the Bible commentaries, I'll say it was that they didn't consult with God. They didn't through prayer and through godly righteousness and including God in the decision, choose their leaders. They did it apart from God. They removed God from the equation, then they chose their leaders apart from God or not by God. Not in accord with God. And this expression about the princes. They have made princes, and I knew not. This word knew is very interesting. There is probably about 50 different ways that this word is used. Some of the other ways or meanings of this word, it's uh, in Hebrew, it's yada. It could also mean, instead of I knew not, it means I acknowledged not. In other words, they made princes and I didn't acknowledge it. Or it could also mean um, advised. They made princes and I advised not. It wasn't through his advice. Or they made princes. It could also mean appoint, but I appointed not. In other words, they chose and God did not choose. In my little note here, it says the kings that they chose were the were Shalom, Menahem, and Pekiah. Pekahiah. Specifically what this verse is talking about. So it's possible for a government to depart from God and choose kings that God doesn't appoint. Right? It also implies that God was upset with them because they didn't defer to God and consult with God in making this decision. Now, I just challenge you, if millions of Christians sit aside and don't participate in an election, and non-believers choose the leaders, isn't that the same of what was happening here in ancient Israel? They removed God, and then they, the people that weren't consulting with God chose their leaders, and because of it, destruction is going to come. If we are supposed to not participate in office or in some of these governments, why is it that Joseph actually held an office in Egypt? Now, Egypt was not a government of God, yet Joseph was the, basically in charge of Egypt. He was the second highest in command under Pharaoh. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 45, verse 5, because there's another very interesting point I'd like to make here about this. Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Remember, we know the story. If you don't, basically Joseph was taken into captivity, sold into slavery. He ended up in Egypt. And God had blessed him and ultimately allowed God, to, um, God allowed Joseph to become basically the second in command in Egypt. And there's a very good reason why. Joseph, at the end of everything, there was a famine and his family came into Egypt. And Joseph said in chapter 45, Verse 4, And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, because they didn't know. So Joseph did this thing where his family was coming to Egypt to him to ask for help in 
Joseph was finally going to reveal himself to his family that he was the one, the, their brother, and that they were speaking to. He says, I pray you, and they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, and here's why God allowed this to happen and why Joseph was given this great position of authority within the Egyptian government You sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. God's purpose. He had a purpose. Drop down to verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. In other words, to do good, to do God's will. God allowed Joseph to participate in the government of Egypt because it was within God's will. Daniel held a high position in Babylon. We can read about that in Daniel chapter 6. John chapter 17, Jesus prayed right before he was going to be crucified, Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil. Protect them from evil. Turn with me to James. I have about 10 minutes. I want to go and read some some of these scriptures in James. Actually, before I go to James, I want to reference the Apostle Paul here. So if you go to Acts chapter 22, we'll see that the Apostle Paul, even though Paul himself said, we are citizens of, not of this world, but we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we are ambassadors here, yet the Apostle Paul, who said, I become all things to all people to further the gospel, remember that? I will do whatever I have to within God's law. I will become all things to all people to further the good news of Jesus Christ. Here we see in chapter 22 of Acts a couple of examples. Verse 21 of chapter 22, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send you far hence to the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto so basically, Paul was in trouble. There was people that were out to get him. Um, I think I'm in the wrong spot here. Acts chapter 22. Okay, so earlier uh, there were some folks that were... Okay, we'll read about that in chapter 25. But here in chapter 22, verse 21 through 29, we read about how Paul was in trouble. He was... Um, Verse 24, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. So the, the Roman centurion brought him in after he had uh, been arrested and he was going to be scourged, and it was preventing Paul from actually preaching. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? In other words, Paul used his citizenship of Rome to get out of trouble, and they let him go. The guy got scared. Oh, I didn't know you were a Roman citizen. So that Paul could get back to doing God's work. We could read here in chapter 25 of, of uh, Acts. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, we see that Festus... Um, 
was come into the province after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest of the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send him to Jerusalem, laying wait to kill him. So the chief priest wanted to kill Paul. And then Paul, here in verse 9 of chapter 25, says, But Festus, willing to do the, to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem? In other words, he find, Festus met up with Paul and said, Hey, come on to Jerusalem to set the trap. But Paul was smart. He understood what was going on. And Paul then said, Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. In other words, I'm a Roman citizen, so I'm not going to be judged by you guys. I'm going to Rome and let Caesar judge me. So here we, we see a couple examples of Paul actually exercising the fact that he was a Roman citizen. Why? To allow him to do God's will, to do good, to continue to stay out of trouble and be able to preach the gospel. Now turn with me to James chapter 1. Because the other argument of why a Christian should vote, brethren, is because James tells us that true religion isn't about putting a little shield around us, living in a cocoon, Bible study, prayer, meditation, fasting, becoming, keeping God's commandments, keeping God's laws. That's all part of it. It's all part of it, of course. Learning, studying, praying, getting close to God. But brethren, James makes it very clear, we have to interact with the world. Jesus made it clear, we are to be lights under the world. Don't take them out of the world. James chapter 1. Verse 22 will break in. James tells us, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. We have to do. We have to do. We have to take action to do God's will. Does God's will, could God's will mean that if we have the opportunity to save an innocent baby, do we stand by and just pray? We just pray, God, please do that, but I'm not going to exercise my authority to try to stand in the gap and prevent that from happening. I'm just going to pray about it, and I know that somehow, some way, you'll take care of it. That's faith. I won't underestimate the power of faith or the power of prayer. It is powerful. But James tells us, be doers of the word. Doers. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man unto beholding his natural face, or a man beholding his natural face in the glass, and beholds when he goes away, he forgets what manner he was, he forgets what he was. In other words, it's not there's no effect to it. It's ineffectual. It doesn't do any good. Turn with me to chapter two of James. Verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, 
In other words, you see a need, you see something that has to be done. Someone is suffering, someone is going through trouble, or someone is in danger. Someone is coming up against a, something bad could happen. Something negative is going to happen which could hurt somebody. If you see this, if you see someone starving and destitute or naked and in need of food, and if one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filmed, I really, really care about you, I really, really hope and want you to be warmed and filled. I pray for you, I will pray for you. And yet, James says, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which they need to the body, what does it profit? Brethren, I submit to you that sometimes, don't you think God actually executes his will through his instruments, who are his ministers, his people? Maybe God performed a miracle by bringing this person to you so that you could help them. And when you say, I'm just going to pray for you, go be filled, God says, I'll say send it to somebody else. And God says he will lift up stones to do his will if we don't do it. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Look at this, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Brethren, in a system of elections, of voting, is it possible that if God wants a certain person to be in charge, that he might motivate his real people, his true people, through them as they engage with God in prayer and wisdom and guidance to ask them to do the right thing and vote for the right person, that God would actually do that and accomplish that through his people, through the authority that they gave them, that they ordained, that he ordained in them that they should have that authority to be able to have influence in, in what goes on in human affairs? Just another side of the argument, brother. God works in us. We see Paul, who used his citizenship for the good of God. We see Daniel and Joseph, who were participants, who held office in worldly governments. Why? To do God's will. We are to be kings and priests in the millennium. We are to be, essentially, politicians in the millennium. We are going to be leaders. We are going to exercise authority over people. And Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 17, in the parable, that those who are faithful in a little will be given cities in the kingdom of God, that he puts us in this life to test us and give us experience so that we can learn how to be leaders. Does it make sense that God doesn't want us to engage in this situation around us and exercise authority? In our system, brethren, in our system of government, we don't have a king. We are the ones that are in charge. We have authority. 
Now, you kind of probably have probably tipped my hand of kind of what I believe. <laughs> but I'll go back and say, I'm still learning. I might be wrong. Some of the scriptures I went through in the front, those are powerful scriptures that need to be considered. We are citizens of a different world. But God has left us in this world. The question is, does he want us to engage in it and have an impact? Or does he want us to stand on the sidelines and just wait and see what happens? For me, brethren, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Because someday I'm going to be standing in front of Jesus Christ and he's going to take account of my life and say, what did you do? James says, or Jesus says, when you've fed me, when you've visited me, me, when you've protected me, or when we say, well, when did we do that to you? He says, when you've done this to the least, of the, the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. I will err on the side of action personally. I will err on the side of being able to wield whatever authority God gives me to try to do good in this world. That's what I'm going to try to do. I will try Personally, my, I would choose to vote. That's what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll be very candid. I might be wrong. If I am, forgive me. But that's where I'm going to err for now. doesn't mean that I'm not a citizen. I'm an ambassador. And may God, God, please give me the wisdom to make a good choice that's in accordance with his will. Because it's my mission to do his will to the best of my ability on this earth. That's just me. If you choose not to, I will not judge and can't. It's not my place. It is the Church of God International, I believe, doesn't take a stand, doesn't take a position. They don't condemn it, and they don't promote it. They leave it up to us. Brethren, God puts a choice between us, in front of us. I put before you this day life and death, good and evil. He says, choose life. May God give you the wisdom to make the right choice in this election, of one, whether or not you personally are going to vote and participate, and two, if you do, that God gives you the wisdom to make a good choice. And one, it's in accordance with his will.